Great to see all of you. And this is my last time I will preach for a couple of weeks. So I'm going to finish off this little uh, section on the book of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 3. And we're looking at uh, getting to know Jesus. We're looking at getting to know the person of Jesus and how we can understand his ministry. And so if you haven't um, been around in the last couple of weeks, I encourage you to, to um, get online and have, listen to the podcast. But I want to talk to you this morning about Jesus and the calling of the disciples. And it really is a picture of a number of things for us. It's a picture of authentic salvation, what it means to, means to be saved and uh, what that means. And I want, I'd like to look at that as part of what I want to talk about this morning. So I've just simply called it Jesus, Jesus' family of disciples. And we're going to read from verse 7 of chapter 3 through to verse 21. And it says, uh, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make known. Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also called apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, who gave, he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boangeres, that is, sons of thunder. These were quiet men, huh? These were not, these were shrinking violets, these fishermen. <laughs> sons of thunder, I like that. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And then verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Amazing. Even Jesus' family thought he was crazy. Isn't that an amazing thought? <laughs> Jesus, you are out of your mind. And uh, this comes now, this portion that we read today, after what we looked at last time. Remember I said last week with the culmination of the opposition coming against Jesus that Mark describes. And we focused on three stories last week that just describe something of the kingdom of grace that Jesus was bringing. All right? And I said to you that, uh, one, he was doing something completely new. He's bringing a new kingdom, a kingdom of grace, and um, that's why we had a look at the thing of how he fasted with his disciples, and he used the example of the wedding, and he said he was doing a new thing. He also used the example of new wine and new wineskins, and Jesus said you can't do something completely new and try and patch up the old. You have to do, the new wine requires a new wineskin. And the second thing I looked at last week was that um, the new kingdom he was bringing was much more about grace than it was about legalism, and so we had a look at... Um, the question when uh, his disciples are going for a stroll on, a sun, uh, on the Sabbath and he picks a, they pick some grains of wheat and start munching on the grains of, of wheat 
and that was to illustrate something of the new kingdom of grace that he was bringing, and we looked at that. And lastly, we um, looked at the fact that religion is cruel, but grace is full of compassion. And uh, Jesus heals a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And so I want to encourage you, if you missed out last week, that you get online and you listen, so you can understand just where we're going in terms of this progression through Mark. And so now, Jesus, after this time of opposition, Jesus withdraws a little bit, and he starts to concentrate on his followers. That's what we're going to look at today. So he starts to train his successors, those that are going to come after him. And so just as an introduction, please note this. We see right from the beginning that Jesus' ministry was not just focused on the local, it was focused on the nation of Israel. Do you notice that? It says that people came from all over the nation of Israel, from Galilee, Judah, Jerusalem, and Idumea. That's the Edomites. And then it says from the Jordan, the Jordan River, Tyre and Sidon were in the Mediterranean basin. So Jesus is attracting people from a vast area to come. So right at the beginning, Jesus was concerned about the nation and the nations. He wasn't just like a local church pastor concentrating on one area. He was called to the nation. Please notice that. And here, he has to make a remarkable choice right at the beginning of his ministry. There's no media to get out his message. There's no television, there's no printed press. And so what does he have to do? He chooses right at the beginning a bunch of men onto whose hearts he wants to write his message so that through their lives they will communicate his message to everybody. He takes an amazing chance on people. Jesus, isn't God amazing? Right at the beginning of this history, the story of redemption that Jesus is um, bringing to us, he, he includes ordinary people right at the beginning of the story. It's absolutely incredible. I want to say too, as an introduction, it's also significant that Jesus and the church is birthed with a group of people. Do you notice that? It's a group of people. From the very beginning, the Christian faith was something that was designed to be discovered in community and to be worked out in community, in family. Are you with me? This is what Jesus called his disciples into. He called them to know him, but he called them straight away into a family, into a community. Beware of those that preach a gospel that say you do not need the church. It is not authentic Christianity. It is not authentic faith. And in our age of individualism, people want to just know Jesus and they don't want his church. It is not authentic faith. Right from the very beginning, Jesus called people to himself and he called them to each other. Very, very different people we'll look at now. He called them to each other and he said, you are my church. And he said, you can get on with each other. And by the power of my spirit, the differences that you have can be worked through and you can get on with each other. It's the power of the gospel. God came for every nation, not just one. He came for individuals, not just one. Are you with me? The whole essence of the Christian faith is that it binds people together. Didn't we sing that song in the 80s, for those of you that have been long enough born? Bind us together, Lord, bind us together. I grew up in the Methodist church. We used to link arms and sway and sing that. <laughs> and there's this task that we have. When we know Jesus, the task that we have is to get on with the challenge of living with each other. In our individualistic age, people don't want the challenge of getting on 
working things out with each other. It's far easier just to sit at home and pretend that you are the church by yourself with your family and listen to a podcast and worship and say, that is church. That ain't church. Church is God's people getting together, working out their differences by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to say to you, by introduction also, it's a mixed group of people. And I was just thinking, we love eating together as a, as a family. And so we, when we moved into our house five, six years ago, we bought a very big table. Why? Because the center of our family is eating. Unashamedly eating. We eat together all the time. Breakfast, and when we're on holiday, lunch and supper, and we sit down every meal, and we eat together. Why? Because it's the heart of the family is community, and the best way to inspire community is to eat together. This is not a law. I'm encouraging you to eat together in your home, with your kids, often. Why? That's where you talk. That's where you chat. That's where community is formed in that way. And notice I was thinking, what was it like for this first group of people that Jesus called around the dinner table? I just wonder. I would have loved to be a fly on the wall. Why? Because they were such an extreme group of people. Do you notice that? Matthew, who we looked at, the tax collector who sold out to the political system and is making as much money as he can off people. He's ripping people off. That's what tax collectors did. And we see Simon, uh, here in this um, portion it translates Simon the Zealot. Luke also says Simon the Zealot. Some of the commentaries say that's too strong a word because the Zealots were nationalists and the Zealots were passionately about Israel and they were happy to murder people to see Israel established as an independent nation. So some of the commentators say it's too strong that he was just a very nationalistic guy. Well, best case scenario, he was very nationalistic. Worst case scenario, he was a terrorist, all right? (laughs) And he's with a guy who sold out to the political system. He's sitting around the table and there's a bunch of fishermen who are just trying to work hard to... to, um, earn a living, and I'm sure they had something to say about paying too much tax to Matthew. I'm sure they did. Can you imagine what it was like around the dinner table with those first group of disciples? They must have had some fierce debates. And you know what? It was possible for them to be together despite the fact that they were very different. Why? Because they loved Jesus. That's what drew them together, the fact that they love Jesus. And so I want to put to you again that right from its birth, Christianity insists that diverse people live together in community, work it out, and in doing that, testify to the one who's able to bring all people together, Jesus. And so, it is still a dream in our hearts that this church will be a multicultural church, that we will have people from many, many different nations in this church. Why? Because it's a picture of heaven. Get used to it. We are going to be together in heaven. All tribes, redeemed, redeemed communities, redeemed nations, together taking the best of who we are into, into, the, into heaven with us. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be amazing. So we try and work it out here on earth. Amen? We get on with each other and we lay aside our differences because there's one in us who's making it possible for that to happen. Are you with me? And so... They're not wealthy. They're not any social qualifications. They weren't religious leaders or theologians. We've talked about all those things before. But I want to say there were two things that qualified these 12 men that were called. One, they loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. They couldn't help themselves but follow Jesus. 
And there was something in Jesus that transfixed them, that drew them, and they loved Jesus. And they wanted to make him their master. They wanted to follow him. I just got a basic question for all of us this morning. Do we love Jesus? Do we love him? Are, are we, are we, what do we see in Jesus? Do we just see him as a miracle worker and someone who fixes up? Or, or do we see him as the son of God, the one who touches us, transforms us, makes him more like himself, the one who inspires us for life? I'm not putting these things on you. I'm just asking you to think about it. How do you see Jesus this morning? What does he mean to you? You know, even the demons recognized that he was the Son of God. When we look at this gospel, sometimes the, the ones that were healed didn't even recognize he was the Son of God. What is Jesus to us? What is Jesus to you this morning? And secondly, I want to say, these guys, not only were they passionately lovers of Jesus, they were brave. <laughs> and I think sometimes we can skip over that. Let's not make a mistake. It followed right at the beginning. It took great courage to follow Jesus. It did take courage. He was calmly breaking all the rules, offending the Pharisees, and he was being drawn into this inevitable conflict with the Pharisees. He was already branded a sinner. He was already called a heretic. Go and read it in the first couple of chapters. They've already called him that, the religious leaders. It took courage to hang around with someone like that. And so I want to put it to you this morning, my friends, that for you and I, it's going to take great courage to continue to follow Jesus. Why? Because the world in which we live is increasingly cynical towards any kind of faith. It's increasingly hostile to people of faith, and that means it's hostile to Christianity. And particularly to those that are seen to be intolerant. Yes? Christianity is seen by many as intolerant. Why? Because it has absolute truths that it holds to. And we were in the prayer meeting a couple of weeks ago. Did I mention this? The St. Albans prayer meeting. We had a, a, a guy from Bedford who came to share with us some of the things that are being debated in the European Union, the European Parliament. And one of the things that uh, was brought by a Spanish um, contingent was that we need to... Uh, the, the, the European Parliament must pass laws that legislate that the only ones that we are not, we will not tolerate are intolerant people. In other words, people of faith. And they also said that if children are raised in homes like that, then we, they must be, go through a program of rehabilitation. The, the state must be able to rehabilitate people so that they become more tolerant. This is what's being debated in the European Parliament right now. So, my friends, it's going to take courage for you and I to stand up and say, actually, no, we love Jesus, and our love for Jesus means we're going to live a certain way. We don't fight with culture. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we, we wrestle against powers and principalities that would have exalted themselves above the name of Jesus. And so these disciples of Jesus, when they were called, they went into this thing with open eyes. I'm saying to you as a church, as a community of believers, we're going to have to go into the future with open eyes, knowing what's coming, but with courage, that we will stand for Jesus and tell the world that we love him. Okay. Thirdly, I want to look at why Jesus called these men. Well, he simply called them, first of all, to be with him. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? He called them to be with him. He just called them to be his friends. He called them to be his companions. You know, he was ministering to large, uh, large groups of people. Crowds come and go, don't they? People come, people go. 
Jesus, even Jesus needed friends. He needed some people that were going to stick with him and be close to him that he could share his life with. They could pray for him, lift up his arms, encourage him. I want to say, if Jesus needs friends, needed friends, you and I need some close friends. Can I ask you, just ask you this. Be careful who you choose as your friends. (laughs) I can't legislate who you hang out around with, but I want to encourage you to do this, that you hang around with people that are going to lift you up and encourage you, that are going to speak positively about Christ, that are going to speak positively about His church, that are going to stand with you in times of trouble. Hang around with those kind of people. Yeah? Someone once said, I can tell you about your future by the kind of people that you have as your friends. Who's the right people? People that will disciple you upwards. People that will disciple you towards Jesus. Not away from His church. Towards Him and His church and the lost. So I want to say, up front, all of us are first called to be disciples of Jesus before we are called to do anything for Jesus. Amen? We are called to Him before we are sent out by Him. I absolutely hold to that. Absolutely with a hundred We are called by the Spirit to Christ before we do anything for Jesus. We are called by the Spirit to come and know Him. And we first have to know the love of God. We first have to know the grace of the gospel before we can give anything to anybody else. So it all starts at the feet of Jesus. It all starts as a disciple at His feet. Um, uh, Corinthians talks about giving away the comfort that we've received. You have to receive that comfort from Jesus first before you can give it away. So it all starts at the feet of Jesus. It all starts with friendship and communion with Him. Uh, I love 1 John 1.3. It says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. That's what it's about. It's about fellowship with the Father and fellowship with His Son, Jesus. Well, what does the gospel say? We are supposed to abide in the vine. When we abide in the vine, we are fruitful. I want to call you. I want to encourage you in your relationship with your personal relationship with Jesus. That's where it all starts. And what did uh, Jesus commend above all? Mary, sitting at his feet, saying, I just want to hear from you. I just want to sit at your feet. And that's where it begins, at the feet of Jesus. And so I've said to you, that this is also a picture of authentic conversion. We first are converted to Christ, this personal relationship that we have. Immediately we converted to Christ. We are called into His church. And I'm not just talking about the church of, in the world. I'm talking about local church communities where we work it out with each other. We are called into that. And it, then we are called to take what we have out. What did Jesus do? He said that He wanted to send them out to preach with power and to um, set people free from demonic oppression. So that's the third part of it, isn't it? Call to Christ, call to His community, call to the mission of Jesus, which is to preach the good news. Those three work together. You can't have one or two, or just one. You need all three. Christ, community, calling. That's it. And that's how it's worked out. And we are called to represent Jesus. So he talks about here, he says, they are apostolos, sent ones. He sends them out to represent Him and to preach. And not all of us are called to preach to congregations. I understand that. But all of us are called to preach through our lives to our friends and to live out our lives 
that they demonstrate Jesus to our friends and our family and our communities. And in that sense, we should be able to say to each other, follow me as I follow Jesus. Not in an arrogant way, but just I'm on a journey with Jesus. Remember I spoke to you last time about Jacob at the end of his days, worshipping over his staff and blessing those that were coming after him. Remember? He was still on a journey right at the end of his life. We are going to be on a journey forever with Jesus until we go into heaven or until he comes back. And what do we have to proclaim? We have a message to proclaim. We have a message. We are heralds of a new kingdom. We are heralds of the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of God, the gospel. And we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim him. We proclaim Jesus. And what did Paul say? Cursed is anyone who preaches another gospel other than that one that I preach to you. And the good news that Paul preached is that, simply put, God saves sinners. Yes, that's what we have to proclaim to the world. We simply proclaim that it is God who saves and we put our trust in Him. And I want to read to you something that uh, one of my favorite writers is an American called Paul Tripp. And I think I've read this before. I just want to read it again. It talks about grace and what the gospel actually does for us. Because I want to encourage you this morning that all of us preach a gospel to ourselves. Have you ever noticed your self-talk? You know when you're alone, or when you're like me, when I'm playing golf or running, these thoughts start going in my mind. Your self-talk, how do you speak to yourself? We all preach a gospel to ourselves, in our heads, every day. What is the gospel that you preach to yourself? Either it's about your insufficiency, it's about your failures, it's about your insecurities, it's about what you're not doing. That's a certain kind of gospel. Or there's another gospel which you can preach to yourself every day, which is about God and His sufficiency, and that He is able, and that His grace is sufficient. Be aware of your self-talk. Are you with me? And here, this is what Paul Tripp says. Grace is the most transformational word in Scripture. The entire Bible is a story of God's grace, a story of undeserved redemption. By the transforming power of His grace, God reaches into the muck of this fallen world through the presence of His Son, and He radically transforms His children from what we are, sinners, into what we are becoming in His power, Christ-like. The famous John Newton wrote the hymn in the best possible words for that grace. Amazing. So grace is a story, and grace is a gift. It's God's character. It's your hope. Grace is a transforming tool and a state of relationship. Grace is a theology, and it is an invitation. Grace is an experience, and it is a calling. Grace will turn your life upside down while giving you a rest that you have never known. Grace will convince you of your unworthiness without ever making you feel unloved. Grace will make you acknowledge that you cannot earn God's favor and it will remove your fear of not measuring up to His standards. Grace will confront you with the fact that you are much less than you thought you were, even as it assures you that you can be far more than you ever had imagined. Grace will put you in your place without ever putting you down. 
Grace will enable you to face truth about yourself that you have not wanted to consider while freeing you from being self-consciously introspective. Grace will confront you with profound weaknesses and at the same time introduce you to a newfound strength. Grace will tell you what you aren't while becoming, and at the same time, uh, sorry, Grace will tell you what you aren't while becoming you, welcoming you to what you can now be. Grace will make you as uncomfortable as you've ever been while offering you more comfort than you ever have known. Grace will drive you to the end of yourself while it invites you to a fresh start and a new beginning. Grace will dash your hopes but will never leave you hopeless. Grace will decimate your kingdom as it introduces you to a better king. Grace will expose your blindness as it gives you eyes to see. Grace will make you sadder than you've ever been while it gives you great cause for celebration than you've ever known. Grace will enter your life in a moment and will occupy you for eternity. You simply cannot live a productive life in this broken down world unless you have a practical grasp of the grace that you have been given. So faithfully preach the gospel of grace to people, but start by preaching it to yourself daily for the sake of your own soul and for the ministry to what God has called you. I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly encouraging. That's what we have to proclaim. And we don't just do that in our own strength, because I'll finish with this. We also have been given power. God has given us everything. He's given us the message, and He's given us power. We have power by the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can bring healing to others. We can help to release those from demonic oppression. That's what it means to bring a new kingdom. We can be all those that pray for the sick to comfort those who are in sorrow, those who are going through a hard time, to bring peace to people where there is no peace. We can be those people by the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming the message that He's given us and that we've experienced ourselves. Amen? We can all learn to be a helper. We can all learn to be a friend. And uh, I love 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5. It says this, We proclaim not ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? The message we talk and we speak to others is not about us. It's not our message. We proclaim Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians church. We don't have our own message. We proclaim Jesus. And as we do that, we just serve you. That's what we're doing all the time. And so I want to encourage you with that. Uh, Helen read this to me in her devotions this week. I love this portion. Uh, 1 Peter 3 verse 8 talking about what we can uh, do for each other by the power of the Spirit. It says this, Finally, all of you, including me, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Sympathy. God's church could just be more sympathetic. What does that mean? It means when someone's going through a hard time, you don't lecture them. You don't tell them how they should pray more. You don't tell them to... Get strong. You have sympathy. You come alongside and your heart connects with theirs and you say, you know what? I'm learning 
to sympathize with you. I don't understand fully, but I can sympathize with what you're going through. Brotherly love. You know, the Bible's so practical. It says this. It says, treat older women as mothers and older fathers, uh, older men as fathers. And it also says, treat younger women as sisters in absolute purity. If we could just do that, there would not be sexual, no sexual problems in the church, would there? Just treat older people with respect. Treat younger people that are not your wives or husbands. Just treat them like you would treat your sister. The Bible is beautiful. And it goes on. It says, have a tender heart, a humble mind. <laughs> now, why are there so many problems in church communities? Because there's no humility. Everyone wants their opinion to be the highest opinion. Everyone thinks they know better about everything. <laughs> and that's why to be part of a church community requires great humility. Because it says, I don't know everything. <laughs> and actually, you might know better about something than me. And so what, you know, I'm going to just guard my own heart, keep my opinion where it needs to belong, and I will consider other people better than myself. And I will open my ears and listen. Requires humility, doesn't it? Especially humility from, so we all absorb and let the Scripture transform us. It says, do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling. But on the, country, on the contrary, bless those, for this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. And then I love this portion, I'm nearly finished. It says this, how many of you desire to see a good life and good days? Anyone here? I do. And this is what Peter, um, Peter says. Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, he gives us a couple of practical things. He says, let him keep his tongue from evil. <laughs> Just speak wisely. If you want to see, have a good life and see good days, speak wisely. Keep your love from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue peace. Just those practical things. Drop our mouths. Speak wisely, pursue peace, and the promise of the Scripture is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are, upon the, are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If we want to live a good life and see good days, let's give ourselves to those things by the power of the Spirit. And then I finish with this. <laughs> if we're going to live like that, you know what? People might also think that we are crazy, just like they thought Jesus was crazy. His own family thought that he was crazy. And so if we're going to give ourselves to blessing those that curse us and to forgiveness and to considering others more highly than we consider ourselves. You know, perhaps, perhaps people are going to say, those Christians are crazy. Look at how they live. In fact, they said Jesus was out of his mind. You would think that his own family would appreciate his life and his ministry, but they were not able to do so at this point. And in fact, if you read on, the Pharisees say of Jesus, actually, you are possessed by the devil. That's the only reason that you can cast out demons is because you, you serve Beelzebub. That's what they say to him. Can you imagine that? And I want to put it to you that if we are going to commit ourselves as Christians to doing the work of Jesus, that perhaps many will not understand and perhaps even our own families will not understand completely. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 10. He said, Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person, their enemies will be those in their own household. 
Sometimes, what is Jesus saying? Sometimes even our family doesn't understand what God has called us to. It's hard. It takes courage. It takes the, the power of the Holy Spirit in us. I was just thinking, well, why did Jesus' family feel like that? Well, perhaps, perhaps because they thought he was throwing away, throwing away a, f- a flourishing business. You know, he was a successful carpenter. And perhaps they thought, it's about the business. Jesus, what about your business? Don't throw away your business. How many times when people don't get saved and go do stuff and they throw away a successful career, throw away a successful career, how many times don't our families say, what are you doing? What about your career? What about your future? What about your life? What is this crazy thing you're doing? Perhaps it was because they knew he was just going to collide with the Pharisees and it was going to be a big fight. And perhaps they thought um, that wasn't a wise thing. I know this, that in my life there's certain kinds of people that I've tried to stay clear of because I just know those kind of people, if you try and fight with them, they just make your life a misery. Have you ever met such people? You just know. If you confront that person, it's just going to be a big fight. And so what you do is you just kind of try and just walk a life where you don't have to confront them. And Jesus had those kind of people in the Pharisees. (laughs) But he didn't sidestep the issue, did he? went straight in, and perhaps his family felt, you are taking a battle on here that is just going to not do you any good. You are crazy, Jesus, to do this. But he felt and he knew that he had to win this battle for the sake of the kingdom that he was bringing. And then, lastly, I thought, well, perhaps, perhaps it's because he started this strange little family, and his, family, his own family didn't understand what he was doing. He started his own family. It consisted of fishermen. It consisted of a tax collector and a fanatical nationalist, as, as, as I talked about earlier. Not the kind of people that you would want to hang around with to get ahead in society, is it? If you're trying to be upwardly mobile and, and um, get into politics or something, those are not the kind of people that you choose to hang around with. And this is the kind of family that Jesus chooses right at the beginning. And perhaps his own family said, Jesus, it's not good for you to hang around with those kind of people. They didn't understand it. But I want to say, for me, there are, I am finishing with this. There are three simple things that I think the way that Jesus chose to, to uh, choose his disciples reflects three things about Jesus. And I leave you with these three things. One, and I put it to you that as disciples of Jesus and becoming disciples of Jesus, you and I, these three things we're going to have to deal with ourselves. All right? Jesus didn't care about his own personal security. Didn't. The one thing that most people want more than anything in the world is a sense of security. That's what we all want. Most people want a job and a future and a house which is secure, and they want to know that their material future and their financial future is secure, and they don't want to threaten that with any risk-taking. I'm speaking as one who has a desire for personal security. I'm not accusing anyone. But what I am saying is is this, that Jesus cared very little for personal security. It wasn't a basic motivation for him. What he wanted to do was he wanted to see the kingdom come, and he wanted to do the will of his Father on earth as it was in heaven. Amen? And so I'm saying to you, all of us, in a different measure, we're going to have to confront in our own lives our desire for personal security, our desire to be safe, 
Our desire not to rock the boat too much because we don't want to lose our material wealth. We're going to have to confront it at a different level for all of us. I understand that. But it is something we're going to have to overcome if we're going to ever become disciples of Jesus and love his kingdom. Amen? Amen. Two, Jesus threw away any need for personal safety. (laughs) Most of us like to play safe, don't we? We don't like to take risks. We don't naturally take risks. We don't naturally take a chance. Most of us do take the safest option because we want to take the right option. And often we we see the safest option as the right option. And we instinctively, as human beings, we shrink away from risk. Uh, And that's why those guys that make the most money in, in terms of financial institutions are those guys that take a calculated risk and they're brave enough to take that risk when no one else is, and the reward is financial, big finances. Isn't that true? Venture capital and all these kind of things. You see, we are wired not to take risk, but that's not how Jesus was wired. Jesus was wired to live a life of faith. And how many of you heard this little thing? That faith is spelt R-I-S-K. I wish it wasn't like that sometimes. That's my own desire for safety. But faith is risk. We don't risk anything for the kingdom. We ain't ever going to achieve anything for the kingdom. Jesus was one who threw away any thoughts of personal safety and he took risks based on what God had said to him for his life. I want to encourage you to be full of faith as we go into this new year. Full of faith. Taking some risks. Let's, as a community, let's be brave and take some risks for the kingdom. And lastly, Jesus was utterly indifferent to what other people thought. (laughs) He didn't really care what other people thought about him. Isn't that amazing? I read this this week, H.G. Wells. Remember the famous author, great writer? He made this point. He said, most people, for most people, the voice of their neighbors is louder than the voice of God. True. The voice of our neighbors is louder than the voice of God for many of us. Many of us are motivated by, what will other people think? If I do this, what will other people think? Jesus didn't care what other people thought. (laughs) And so perhaps if we start living a little bit more like Jesus, people will think we are crazy. But I want to conclude by calling you and encouraging you that all of us, Jesus is calling us all to himself, He's calling us all to each other, and he's calling us all on an adventure with him to see the lost saved. It is a great adventure, and it's an adventure for his namesake and for his glory, and it does involve great risk. It involves discomfort. It involves faith. It involves us stretching ourselves from the inside, and it's all for the sake of his name and his glory And the essence of walking with Jesus as a disciple, my friends, is this. For the sake of your name and for the sake of your glory, Jesus, we do this. That's it. I want to ask you, as I ask myself, as we look, say goodbye to 2013, and we look forward to 2014, what adventure is Jesus calling you to? What faith adventure is Jesus 
calling you to? What faith adventures is Jesus calling us to as a community? Because I want to say this to you, that your faith adventure is not just going to include one of those three things, it's going to include all three of those things. Your love for Jesus, your love for the church, and your love for the lost need to be married in the adventures that we have for Christ. Amen? Don't have just one. Uh, It's all about Jesus. Don't worry about his church. Don't worry about preaching to the lost. It's all about Jesus, and I want to preach to the lost, but I don't want to have anything to do with his church. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh. All three. Jesus, his church, and the lost. That is our mission. That is our mandate. That's what we are called to. And I want to conclude by reading Acts 4. Remember in Acts 4 when the disciples are doing amazing stuff, the Pharisees call them in, and they say, you will stop speaking about Jesus or else we're going to kill you. And what do they go? They go away into the little holy huddle, the little huddle, and they get together and they pray. And what do they pray? They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to con- that we will continue to speak your word with great boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Let that be the cry of our hearts. Let that be what we give ourselves to. Jesus, whatever comes against us, we're going to proclaim your name, we're going to reach out to the lost, and we're going to trust that as we do that, signs and wonders will follow, salvation will come, we'll see healing, and all for your name's sake. That's the adventure that Jesus is calling us to. Amen.